Heavenly Father, thank you for this time um, that we have here together today, that we could come and worship and we could lift up our voices and praise to you, um, and that we can also open up your word and see your love for us, that we see this love letter you've written to us as something precious. And so we take every word seriously and we want to know more about it because it, it reflects who you are. We can't see you in person. We can't see you dancing amongst us as your spirit, but we can read about you, and we can read about your word. It's how you've chosen to reveal yourself to your children, and so I pray, Lord, you open our eyes and open our hearts to see you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So we have been um, kind of walking through Deuteronomy a little bit, and today we're going to land on the Ten Commandments. Um, and I think you'll be, well, anyway, we'll just get there. So what we've done is, in, through up to chapter 5, we have uh, Moses is retelling. It's Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law. So he's telling this all over again. The people are about to take the promised land. They're about to cross the Jordan. They're about to go in, and he knows that he isn't going there. God's already told him that. You violated, you disobeyed me, so you can't go in. Therefore, he has, this is his last chance to share with his people, this people he loves, people that frustrate him, the people that he wandered around for 40 years because of their disobedience. And he loves these people. So he has one shot at telling them the heart of this message, the heart of what it means to be a follower of God. And so we talked about that the last few weeks, and now we've landed in the Ten Commandments. And some, well, we're going to go, my goal is to go through the Ten Commandments, and then at the end show you how the Ten Commandments are insufficient for your salvation that the point of them isn't to follow the rules. I'm not saying they're bad rules. We'll get through those, but there's a clear context when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you see what Paul wrote in Galatians, you see everything else that's been written since the Ten Commandments were given. Um, we shouldn't be overjoyed with ourselves because we follow the Ten Commandments. It's a, it's a diagnostic tool that shows us how much we need Jesus. So that's where we're going. So first, the Ten Commandments. When you look at them, um, the first four usually address the vertical dimensions, and the last six... Di- address the horizontal dimension. So what you look at in the Ten Commandments is the first four are about you and God. He's first, I should be second or a last. It's about a relationship with God the Father. And the last six are about our relationships with each other. Now we don't separate these two because they're directly connected. Your relationship with God directly affects and impacts your relationship with others. And so we can look at you and say, your relationship with others and how you act, and how it's not that following the rules leads to salvation, it's that we see a lack of relationship between you and God because of how you treat others. Couldn't we honestly say that if you are a murderer, that we could question whether or not you have a relationship with God because you have no value for human life? We could, we could ask those questions, couldn't we? Yes, we could. Thank you for agreeing with me. So, but they're not, it's not one or the other. They're together. They're connected. It's not that I'm just going to spend all this time talking to God and me and my, you know, my retreat center or my place. I'm not have any relationship with any other people and I'm going to get perfect with God. Well, you need to have interaction with other people. And the same, the other is true. Well, I have all these relationships. I'm good with people. I'm a good person. I don't do bad things. So, you know, me and God, we're great. Well, what's your direct relationship with him? Like, do you talk to him? Do you pray? I don't mean that you're the, you know, six hours a day, hanging out, praying all the time. Like, do you have a relationship with him? Do you long for his presence? Well, yeah, okay. So it's not okay just to be a good person. And it's also not okay just to sit and hide yourself from the world and hang out in your closet and just pray all day. 
You have to have relationships with others. So as we see the Ten Commandments unfold, it's about both. It's about your relationship with God and how your relationship with other people. The first one, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Pretty basic, right? We see this in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema, that there's no other gods, there's only one God, he's it. So this is a, a, a commandment based upon the whole story of the Jewish people. It's God saying, I, I parted the Red Sea for you. I make bread fall from the sky. I make water come out of rocks. And sometimes I bring some quail to hang out, and you can eat them too. You've seen miracle upon miracle upon miracle. Who, who else are you going to trust? That little statue? What did that statue do for you? Put no gods before me. I'm the one that saved you. So you, it begins, the Ten Commandments begin with a relationship. It's a relational understanding. It's not a, how dare you? I will smite you if you don't follow me. It's like, I did all this for you. I've saved you. I've set you apart. I've set you aside. Why would you, put, why would you ask anyone else into your house? Why would you ask anyone else into your home? It's very much, it's why marriage is spoken about throughout the scriptures. If I put, I shall put no other women before my wife. Isn't that a detriment to my marriage and to society when I say, I'm going to, there, there's this other woman, I think I'm going to trade Amber in for her. Or I say, you know, Amber's great and God gave me her, but this one over here, she's, she's pretty cool. And so you begin to see this is a relationship. It's not a rule. It's, why would you put anyone before God? He's done all these things for you. Why would you put anyone else in the way? So it's not, it's a relationship. Then he says, you shall not make for yourself um, a carved image or a, a carved, it keeps going all the way through. And he, he expounds, he expands more in Deuteronomy than he does in Exodus. Well, why? He's telling it over, and they know what happened. They made a false god. They made a calf. They made a golden calf. So he expands. He's not expanding the commandment. He's giving some more exposition of it. He said, don't make any carved images. Oh, but here's why. Remember what happened to you? Do you remember what happened? I went up on the mountain to get these commandments. I came down, and you melted all your gold and made a calf. You, you made a, a little god you could put in your pocket. The big god was fire in the sky, clouds by day, foods falling from the heavens, and he goes up, and the people of God are terrified because that God is holy and filled with awe. So let's make a little calf. Now, I'm not saying calves can't hurt you. If you've ever been stepped on a small calf, that doesn't feel great. But it's, it's a calf. It's not a big bull with horns. It's, oh, look at the dainty little calf. That's the God we're going to worship. Why? Because our nature is we want to control God. We want to control who we worship. We don't really want to worship an awe-inspiring creator of the universe, we want to put God in our pocket. And so he has this great long list of why. You shall not make yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there's, it's again, it's a relationship. 
Like, how damaging would it be to my marriage if I had pictures of other women up in my house? Or if Amber comes in my office and I've taken some magazine pinups and put them on my wall and just say, honey, it's, not, it's, just, a, it's just a woman. It's no big deal. I love you, babe. Like, doesn't that start showing cracks in our relationship? Well, it's the same thing here. It's not just that, well, you know, I got that little thing. It's just a little trinket. It's just a little, you're beginning to put cracks into the relationship. So God says, no, you're not going to worship something that's carved an image. I'm, I'm outside of understanding like that. God's saying, you can't put me in a box. You can't put me in a sculpture. It's not going to happen. Now, the part, this isn't generational sin. Um, visiting iniquity of the fathers and the children, what he's getting at is what happened to all the people for 40 years in the desert. When you look at this, it's about four generations. God's essentially saying, when you start bringing false gods into my house, bad things are going to happen. Not as punishment, but as a reality. That when you begin to divide your worship, bad things will happen. He's not saying, because you did this, I'm now going to smite you. He's saying it's just the nature of what happens. If you begin to bring false things into your house that's going to be bad. If you begin to teach your children to divide your worship, then your children are going to teach their children and their children, and it's going to be bad for them. It's not a condemnation. It's just, it's a reality. But then he says, for the thousands who have loved and keep my commandments, those who fight for this, who strive for this, they know I love them. Have you ever seen the picture of the laughing Buddha? Now, as I taught history, um, the Buddha was not this guy. After he encountered um, tragedy, and the story goes that the Buddha saw four things. He was a wealthy noble prince. He saw these things, saw death in three different ways, and felt, how could I live in this kind of opulence when there's death and destruction outside? So he goes for 30 days under a tree. That's how the, the story unfolds. So the Buddha was probably a very skinny Indian descent man who... He wouldn't have been plump and happy. And, but in culture, I know it's not, now, it's not like that today, but maybe only the last 60, 70 years has skinny been the cool thing. Before that, it was always the sign of opulence, the sign of wealth was you had a good girth, you ate plenty of food, and you never had suntan. You never had a tan. You wanted to be as pasty white as could be because if you had a good tan, that meant you worked with your hands for a living and you weren't like super wealthy. You didn't, you didn't earn your money the old-fashioned way by inheriting it. Right? It was more of a, well, today that's all shifted. Now we want to be, you know, with diet fads and super skinny, and we go to tanning beds, and even though we don't go outside, but we want to look like we do, because I don't know why. But, right? So, we, so think of the carved image of the Buddha. Happy, rich looks nice. That's an easy God to bow down to because how, how is he going to draw you to any kind of holiness? It's about laughter and feeling good, and right? It's the same thing. Um, a few years ago, a movie came out called Dogma, and they, they were, it, it's, a, it's a really bad movie. I don't recommend it. Um, it's really dirty. And, but in it, the priest, the Catholic Church, was bringing out a more accessible Jesus. They thought that God was too mean. So they introduced a new campaign in the church, and it was called, this is Buddy Jesus. He's your friend. And so he's got the wink and a thumbs up, and I like you, right? And so it was kind of this Buddy Jesus idea to recraft 
the creator of the universe into an image that's more likable. And God says, don't do this. Don't do these things. I'm God of the universe. I'm Yahweh. I'm holy, creator of it all. Don't put me into a box. Don't carve me into an image. Don't worship the image. Worship who I am. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And I know for a long time, and I didn't start going to church until I was 17. And for a long time, um, I don't know that I used the Lord's name in profanity a lot, but I know I did. And so one of the first things that hit me was, oh no, if I use the Lord's name in vain, if I curse with his name in it, then I'm going to burn. I, dare, I need to stop that. Well, that, there's, there's, some, there's some indication of dishonoring God in profanity, but this is way deeper than that. This, this speaks to false prophecy. This speaks to saying, have I mean, you ever heard someone say, well, well, God told me to do this. Well, I feel God leading me to do this. Well, you better be careful. Like, there's, there's always a... I could, could I tell you that to you guys? How many times have you heard a pastor or a, a leader in a church say, well, I, I, God has told me, God spoke to me, and I'm supposed to leave my wife. Right? Have you ever heard someone say that? There was a pastor in Atlanta that cheated on his wife, and he went before the church, and he said, God told me that this is the woman I'm supposed to marry. This woman was been unfaithful, and the church kept him. You ever heard stuff? I've sat down with people before, and they've opened up the Bible and shown me that God's told them that they want to be happy, and they should be happy, and so they need to leave. That God's ordaining that. So it's deeper than just a profanity. Yes, that's bad. Not, we shouldn't do that. But it's not so much that using God's name in a profanity is going to lead you to damnation. I've always looked at it as an overuse of profanity just leads to an understanding that you have a, a weak mind. It's not that you're going to go to hell for using profanity. It's just that you have a really bad vocabulary, and you probably need to work on that a little bit. And so, like, when I taught high school and the students would rip something out in class, I would give them a, a breakdown of where that word came from, what it means, and go, you're not even using it right. Like, are you really that dense? You can't even curse right. And I usually stopped it instead of just sending them to the office. So it's, God's just saying, don't use my name in vain. That his name is holy. He's holy, and don't cheapen who he is. Don't cheapen who he is in profanity, and don't cheapen who he is by saying, I swear to God I didn't do that. Don't cheapen him. Don't cheapen who he is or cheapen his name by using him to proclaim that you didn't do it, you did do it, I swear I didn't do it. Like, you don't do that. You should just respect who he is and use his name. Call on his name for prayer. Call on his name for help. Call on his name, but don't, don't turn it to just, you know, a phrase for the Urban Dictionary. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, some of you might be a little upset that, God's actually calling you to work six days a week, not five. And so you owe your employer labor, and you should probably give that back now. In our country, when we had a Judeo-Christian upbringing, um, as society progressed, our country decided to just take Saturday and Sunday off, that we wanted to honor the Jewish holiday and the Christian holiday so everybody gets a weekend. Great, right? Well, what God is saying in this is just like in his created order, you need to rest. You need a day of rest. You need a day to not work so hard. This isn't legalistic. This doesn't mean you can't leave church today and go home and cut grass or repair something around the house. That is not what's going on here. 
It's a call by God to say, if you work your whole life, you're going to forget all that I've provided for you. That you should rest. And I know, I, 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 there's only a few places around the world now, around this country, that will take Sunday off. That will close their doors on Sunday. Think about even youth sports. Because think, most parents are working so hard. A lot of parents have to work through Saturday. At least one parent works on a Saturday. They're working on the weekend. The only day off that seems to be, uh, exist anymore that isn't somewhat sacred is Sunday. So then we fill it full of everything. Now there's soccer camp and basketball and baseball, and there's all these things that just fill our Sundays full of stuff. And I'm not saying those are bad, but when that begins to get in the way of a day of rest. And when, before Eli started school, um, I always took Friday and Saturdays off, but I only held one to be holy, and that was Friday. Eli had, and he went to preschool, and it was Monday through Thursday, and so Friday was this day that we called, we called it family day, because when they were younger, they didn't understand Sabbath. We began to tell them that, and so we would sleep in, stay in our pajamas as long as possible. Um, I was always in charge of lunch, which meant turning on the deep fat fryer, and anything frozen in the freezer got thrown in the deep fat fryer, and we called it fried food Friday, and we played games, and we went hiking, and we watched movies, and I tried to keep my cell phone off. As, I mean, I can't keep it off. That's just the nature of the calling on my life, but I never looked at it. You don't play on your iPhone. Don't play on the Internet. You just take a day to be with your family. Go fishing, hike, whatever. Well, that changes when Eli gets into school five days a week. So now we try to take, like, Friday night or Saturday. This last week, um, we went to Colorado, and we camped out at um, Lake Echo and went to Mount Evans and just had a blast and there was no cell reception for two days. How often do we just go places where we, we don't use our phones? Like, there was some detox for my children. It was kind of funny. Well, Dad, what do we do? We're going to go get a stick, and we're going to smack it on a tree, because that's fun. You need to know that that's fun things to do. Oh, well, but I, I, I want to read. Well, then you have a book. Well, can I read it? On? No, you can't. Electronic devices aren't allowed right now. It's not happening. So, like, even they are, as eight- and six-year-olds are so conditioned, they don't know how to rest very well. And so we had a long conversation and that we want to create Saturday to be a day where we're not going to use our devices, as my child says. Like, do you do that? Do you take a day to rest? And I don't mean you don't do the chores around the house. I don't mean you just say, sorry, I am not going to answer the door today. I'm sitting in my seat. But do you take a day to rest, to really enjoy all that God has given you? We need that, desperately. Honor your father and mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that, your Lord, that the Lord your God has given to you. That proper relationship with our kids shows our relationship with God. Again, this isn't a rule. If you have a child that's outside the bounds of where you think they should be, or they're wayward for a while, or maybe you have a parent that is just grueling to be around, you grew up in a house that you would, how could you honor a respect a parent that is brutal to you? That's, that's not, God's not saying that there's this rule, that if your kids go crazy for a season, then, then you're a bad parent. What it's getting at, that the relationship between father and son, father and daughter, mother and son, mother and daughter, is a direct relationship just like his relationship with us. That as God forgives you infinitely, you should forgive your children infinitely. That you should honor your father and your mother. Because the family unit is essential to society. It's essential to society. 
It matters. Family matters. That's the push of this commandment. The last few. I don't think we have to spend a whole lot of time discussing these. You shall not murder. Can we all agree that that's a good thing? That we just don't kill each other? There's a new movie coming out. I've mentioned it before. I didn't watch the first one, and I'm not going to watch this one because the premise just makes my stomach turn. Um, there's a movie called The Purge. It was a, a runaway hit that nobody knew was coming. And in it, there's 12 hours a year where you get to do whatever you want to each other. No crime is going to be arrested. The police suspend all activity. No one is going to arrest you. And if you don't want to be part of the purge, then you stay inside your house. And if you want to go out and be violent and do violence, you go outside and all bets are off. You do whatever you want to each other. And the goal was, in the movie, the premise of the movie is that if you let people just be crazy, wild, heathen animals for 12 hours a year, then the rest of the year there's no crime. They save up their wickedness for that one day a year. Now, I I know, you know, we all laugh because we know that's not true. Well, there's a sequel coming out. And the sequel is that one man, his family was killed during the purge a year or two prior, and so now he's going to go out and rescue people. Like, we're, we're perpetuating this idea that murder's No one agrees that murder's okay. No one. Now, you can see in the Bible, we see that there are some, that killing or the taking of life is some, in some areas is condoned, or not condoned, it's allowed in the Bible, like for military reasons, um, it's pretty clear in Deuteronomy later, we'll get there in 20, that the government or soldiers have a right or have that they're outside of this a little bit. That doesn't mean just disregard for human life, but to protect other people, there is, there's a caveat for that. That in capital punishment, it seems the Bible um, leans that, that whether you believe it's okay or not okay, it seems the Bible will allow that biblically. Um, wherever you land politically on that, what you think about it, the Bible seems to say that that is acceptable to the scriptures. And also that manslaughter, accidental, someone is an accident, is not the same as murder. That manslaughter is not the same as cold-blooded murder. This is going after, I'm going to kill you because you wronged me, and I'm not going to try to reconcile this. It's wrong. Murder's wrong. Adultery. Um, I don't know anyone that has been in an adulterous relationship who's been the one who has cheated. I don't know anybody that sat me, that would sit down across a table for me and say that they felt good about that. It's unexpected. I didn't mean this. You don't know what I've dealt with. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what's happened. Like there's, but I've never had anyone sit down across the table for me and say, yeah, I cheated and it was a good thing and I'm happy about it. I've never heard someone say that. So I don't know that anyone could ever say in society that adultery is okay. It's, it's deeper than just, there's lots going on, there's a relationship, there's hurt, there could be abuse, there could be all these things involved in it that makes it very sticky and hard for all of us to walk through with our family and friends or ourselves. But no one, I don't think anybody's going to come to me and say, it's okay to step out on my wife or my husband because it just, you know, it makes everything better. No, anybody that's going to say that. So God is saying adultery is wrong. It's bad, and he connects it to this unique relationship between husband and wife it's connected to the unique relationship that God has with us. That the breakdown of a marriage in adultery is, is similar. It's exactly like breaking relationship with God. It's not good. But I, I, I always have to try to tell you people that there's always grace. There's always grace. My dad cheated on my mom. 
he, they got divorced. He's remarried. And I've talked to him about his decisions and what his choices and the tension between him and my mom for years and her medical issues. And so I, there's a stickiness amongst it all. It was still wrong, but there's still grace. He's been washed by grace. But we don't just walk around going, yeah, you know, it's okay. I understand. It's wrong, but there's grace for you. Murder's wrong, but every murderer sitting in prison, there's grace for him or her. There's grace for them. We continue. You should not steal. Don't steal. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Sometimes it's thou shalt not lie, correct? But it's the idea of, of accusing people, false witness, lying about someone. Um, it was a kind of a court issue that if you go to court and take someone to court, you better not lie about it. Um, you are not going to bear false witness against someone. You're not going to say someone did something they didn't do. That, we're, that God is setting this society apart to be a group of people that are honest and trustworthy amongst a world that isn't. And lastly, you should not cover your neighbor's wife. And you should not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is, that is your neighbor's. So you get this, the commandments start to grow to things that we can't see. So it starts with God, and a relationship with him, and then the personal ones, you go from ones you can see. If you're a murderer, I'm probably going to know that about you. Maybe I don't. I don't know all of your backstories, but I'll probably know that about you. If you commit adultery and it comes out, we're going to know about that. But how you covet your neighbor, how you want things, I'll never know that about you. Maybe I could hear in your language of how you talk about things. You want the next thing. You want the big thing. You want, but I'm never going to know that you secretly look across the driveway at your neighbor's house across the road and you want that boat. Like you want it so bad. You can taste it. You want it. And you look across the road at the neighbor's life. Like, they just got it so perfect. And if I could just, if my wife would just get in line, then we could have that life. Or if I could just have a different life, that's, if I could go back and do it again, then that's what, that's covetedness. It's a deep-seated sickness um, that permeates all of our society today. Like, if you're a little bit of a technology nerd, then, you know, the next iPhone's coming out in the fall. It always drops. And you begin to covet the next iPhone or the next car. I remember when I built my first truck. We made it fast, and it was awesome. And I was always, what can I do next? What can I add here? What can I do? How can I make it a little faster? And what can we do? And, <clears throat> you know, I've got spark plug wires on there, but chrome-wrapped ones would look better. Right? And I bought them, and they did look better. But it didn't make it run any better. But, you know, we, we're always like the next thing. Well, I've got this camper, but I need a new one. I've got this. Uh, but isn't that our consumer society kind of runs on that, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying things are bad or buying things are bad. But if, it, if you're just con your mind is constantly swirling with the next thing, that can, that can it, it becomes wickedness. Because you want what you can't have. You're, it shows a heart that's not satisfied with what God has provided. God's provided you this. That's not good enough. God's provision is good enough. I want more. It's not bad to get a new car. It's not bad to buy a new house. It's not bad to make things look better. None of that's bad. But if it's what constantly drives you, it's a distraction from God. So where do we land with all of this? 
Two things. These commandments are essential and they point to us the need for Jesus. In the storybook Bible we read last year around Christmas time, the Ten Commandments are wrapped up this way. God gave them other rules, like don't make yourselves pretend gods, don't kill people or steal or lie. The rules showed God's people how to live and how to be close to Him and how to be happy. They showed how life worked best. I love that phrase. God promises to always look look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep these rules? We can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't. And he wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all the rules. And many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them. Because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them. The, the rules of the Ten Commandments are a diagnostic tool to point to us to our sickness. Like, you read through the ten, I've not committed murder, I've not committed adultery, but what did Jesus tell us in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? He tells us, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He talks about anger. You've heard it said that those of old, to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders shall, will be made liable. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell on fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, I've never committed murder, but I've been really mad at people before. And if I could be really honest, which I don't know if we're supposed to be honest in church or not, there's times that I've just wished people would go away. And I don't mean to another state. Just go home to the Lord or wherever else you're going. And I'm the only one, right? I'm the only one with that kind of wickedness in my heart. How about lust? You've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I know I'm the only one in the room, right, that's looked at another woman other than my wife and had a, even for a fraction of a second, a thought of, Man, she looks good in a bikini. I'm the only one, right? Just me. There's a higher... The Ten Commandments tell us the basic to be a human. And then Christ tells us it's deeper than that. It's a diagnostic tool to show you the sickness of your heart. So if we just had a bunch of rules and we just walked at her saying, well, I've not committed murder, I don't steal... You know, I look at my neighbor's stuff a little bit because, you know, they got a cool, you know, go-kart track, and I'd like to have one to ride on that too. But I'm not really, I'm not going to kill them for it. The Ten Commandments are a diagnostic tool to show you the sickness of your own heart. And Jesus tells us it's not just okay to be a good person. You need Jesus. Jesus is the cure for our disease. The Ten Commandments, the law, is the diagnostic, it's the MRI, it's the CAT scan, it's the whole body scan to find cancer. The Ten Commandments, we look at them and we see ourselves in them. I don't measure up to that. I have problems there. Oh, God, I need your son. I need Jesus. And that's why he sent the law. He knew it. So Moses gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus and they break it like crazy. And then he turns around and gives it to him again in Deuteronomy. What happens to the people of God? Have you ever breezed through First and Second Kings? They say, I don't need you, God. We need a king. And God goes, no, you need a priest. You need me. 
No, we want a king. All the other countries have kings. We want a king. All right, I'll give you a king. Here's some kings. And everything went terrible for them. So even as we look around the world and we watch the news and it gets kind of chaotic to us, we're like, what do we, we need? We need a vote. We need a politician. And the, the pundits on TV, whatever channel you watch, will tell you that they know the answer. And the answer is to get this guy out or put this guy in. It's always that way, right? The cure is the next man who's going to be in charge or the next woman who's going to be in office. It's all, none of it's true. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Until then, this is all just trying to put a Band-Aid on the hole in the dike. We need Jesus. So yes, be involved in politics. Yes, be involved in the community. Be involved in social justice. But along the way, you've got to know in your brain that none of it is going to fix anything except Jesus. It may temporarily relieve pain. It may relieve suffering. That's why we go on mission trips. We support missionaries. We give to the food pantry. We do these things because they're good and they help put a Band-Aid on the hole in the dike. But it's never going to cure the world. It's Jesus. So don't ever walk out of here as you go through the Ten Commandments thinking, I don't measure up because none of us do. Don't walk out of here saying, I have this in my past. There's no way God could love me because he knows he's proven his love for you over and over and over again. And his name is Jesus. As you read his word, you can't help but fall in love with the idea that Jesus loves you first that he came after you first, that you don't have it in you to seek him. The fact that you're in a church is because God came after you. Now, you may have gotten drug here or drugged to church sometime in your life by a family friend. You ought to come. It's great. It'd be awesome. But the reason you, that was a divine appointment that God made for you to come into this church. Some of you have neighbors that showed you the gospel. I had a Boy Scout leader that gave me a Gideon's Bible. Then later I dated a girl that brought me to church. She dumped me, but Jesus grabbed me. Like you don't know all the things that are happening, setting on your path to salvation. But don't ever think for a minute that he doesn't love you and he's not chasing you. He desperately wants to have all of your heart. So when you read what Moses is laying out to the people, He's saying this is the basics for us to live and we're going to follow these rules because the world around us is crazy and this will make us a shining light amongst the darkness. But he also tells them over and over again, it's not going to, this isn't it. You need Jesus. Jesus is the one that cures your heart, not a bunch of rules. So today as we close, if you've been in that space, like I, I don't know what that's like. like. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't know what it was to follow rules. It's probably why I, not that I'm irreverent towards church rules, or church, but I, just, I didn't grow up in that world. For me, it's always been about Jesus. So I think one of the lo- most loving things I can do as a pastor is to be the same on this stage, in my office, at my house, and in the community. And that gets me in trouble, to be honest. Because I say things that I probably shouldn't say. I'm still a work in progress. I do things I probably shouldn't do. Sometimes in my mind, I have an irreverence for tradition or ritual because in my heart, I didn't grow up with that. So I'm like, why, why are we doing that? Can't we just talk about Jesus? But I'm, I'm growing and I'm learning. And you guys have been around me enough to know that thank the Lord that there's leaders in this church that have the conviction to sit me down and say, 
hey, you know what? You said that one thing that one time that wasn't smart. And I repent, and I grow, and I try to move forward in that. But I, I don't understand. I do understand why. But I don't, I don't feel it's loving to live a dual life. To be a pastor in a church and be all one way, and then I go home and I treat my wife a different way, or you see me out playing church league softball, and all of a sudden things come out of my mouth that you would never expect to hear out of a... Like, I don't think that's loving. And so it's hard sometimes. Like, there's a book out right now about preacher's kids. And it's um, about the pressure on preacher's kids. And so I fear that with my children. But then I'm like, I don't hold them to any higher standard than I hold myself to. My children don't come into this building thinking they have to be perfect. They can't run. They can't, like, they don't feel that. They don't feel that pressure. You guys don't put that pressure on them. They, They are who they are but they're all works in progress. And that's what I want for all of us to collectively as a family come to this realization that none of us are perfect, none of us can follow these rules, we all need Jesus, and we're in this together. And like any family, there's going to be bumps and bruises and hurt feelings and miscommunications, but we're going to get through it because we love each other. That Christ brings us together, and that's where we're going to be. So that 30, 40 years from now, we have a good old family reunion and we've moved and people moved on and people have passed away and their grandkids are here. We're all going to come together every Sunday or every so often have a big reunion saying, man, Mike, remember that time you said that? Yeah, you were silly for saying that. And that's being nice. Do you remember that time we fought through this? Remember that time we were moving dirt outside? Do you remember that time we did one of this youth trip and things went crazy? Do you remember? The, it'll be a big family reunion. Like, look at all that Christ has done in all of our lives over these decades. Wouldn't that be amazing? And that's what I want for us, is to be a family that submits to God's authority, but we're real about it. We're, real, we're not, we're not going to play games about it. We're going to be honest with what we struggle with. And we're going to work through it together. That was a mini-sermon in itself. Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word as we are walking through this retelling of the law. And I pray that we all see it for what it is, that it's a diagnostic tool. It's a, it's 